Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. First and foremost, I want to thank Joe McGinty for his invitation to address this meeting. When I stood out there before the crowd had arrived, I thought they were very optimistic in having such a big hall for an ordinary AA meeting. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see such a large number of you people coming in, despite the weather, despite the many other attractions like football games and all that, which uh, could claim your attention tonight. Now, you know, there's only one type of individual who uh, speaks in an AA meeting. That's an alcoholic. And I am just that. Why? Your question, not mine. It's up to you to answer. There is any rhyme or reason to it, it escapes me. We become alcoholics, possibly through our own fault, possibly because we're born that way, possibly because we have some physical uh, disability. It doesn't matter. But when we say we're alcoholic, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're calling ourselves the worst name in the book. You know, uh, sometimes the soldier returns in the wars exhibits his scars and is a little bit proud of them because they're evidence of what he's been through. In much the same way, uh, the good Lord himself, you know, appeared to his disciples and said to that doubting Thomas, come hither and put your finger into the holes in my hands and your hand into my side. That seeing you may believe. There are certain favored individuals whom we call the stigmata who have uh, received the impressions similar to those which Christ himself received on the cross. All which I'm trying to say is that we are carrying a cross. It's the cross of alcoholism. And whether uh, we enjoy it or not is immaterial. The fact is that that's the cross the divine providence allows us to carry. You know, uh, sometimes uh, people are distracted by a little abnormal curiosity. And rather than distract you, I will set your mind at rest. When I first came into the program, this was a long time ago, I was, I suppose, what you might call an eager beaver, you know, eager, ready to go on call whether the guy was exactly ready to receive me or not. But I went with another fellow, and this pigeon was in bed, you know, and uh, he kept looking at me and looking at me, and he says, Father, do you belong to this outfit? I says, yes. He said, do you mind answering a personal question? And I said, no, go ahead. Well, he says, Father, what in hell were you drinking that took off all your hair? 
don't think that's exactly uh, the badge of the alcohol. You look around, you know, you see a few shining domes. But uh, they tell me, too, that you can still have a good head of hair and still be alcoholic. We can't exactly blame it on what we have been drinking. As a matter of fact, we don't know exactly what causes us to become alcoholic. I couldn't tell you. There isn't too much to my story, nothing real uh, melodramatic. I didn't drink because I fell in love with somebody and my love was not uh, re uh, requited. I didn't drink because I was running away from something. I didn't drink because I lost a lot of money and never had it to lose. I never drank because I lost a big position because I never held one of those to lose. I didn't drink because of some great sorrow. Because while I've had the ordinary sorrows, nothing that I can uh, blame it on to. Nor because I was unduly celebrating things, because looking back, it didn't make much difference. Whether it was at a funeral or at a wedding, it didn't make a whole lot of difference. Whether it was a wake or a chivalry, it was always the same. We say, uh, uh, for instance, or what, how, if you're in the age depend upon the spiritual program, which we do, how come then that a priest could uh, fall a victim to this disease? Just the same as anyone else. By drinking too long, too much, and too often. And I know of no immunity guaranteed to anybody who wears a Roman collar if he follows that program of drinking too often, too much, and too long. I don't think he will be preserved from becoming alcoholic. For the lack of a better word, we call it a sickness, disease, if you will. And uh, yet there is no pathology for it, nothing which the doctor can operate on you and cut out. And there's no specific medicine that he can give you which will ensure you're being able to drink without uh, getting into trouble. But uh, there isn't much of any other word that describes it so well. If you want to go real deeply into this subject, read uh, Jelinek's book, The Disease Concept uh, of Alcoholism. And you can understand half the big words your way better than I am. What is this alcoholism? What was it that caused me to become that? Looking back, I had a normal home life. They usually say good Christian parents, that was fulfilled. I suppose that there probably were some alcoholics in the family tree. But I ask you, uh, do you know of any particular family tree that you could shake very hard that an alcoholic wouldn't fall out of it? <laughs> when I was a boy, they kept a bottle of Casey's. That was the name of the liquor that they used at our house in the pantry with the vanilla extract and the lemon extract. And you took it when you were sick. 
And I was kind of a weakling, and they used to give me eggnogs. And I can remember distinctly asking my mother to put the vanilla extract in the eggnog, and she'd say, no, put a little whiskey in. I didn't know at the time, didn't find out too much later, that vanilla extract is far more powerful than intoxicant <laughs> than uh, liquor is. Through high school, through college, I didn't qualify, I didn't fool with the stuff. At that time, you know, I think I had a little ambition to become an athlete. The closest I came to realizing that ambition was that I did acquire athlete's foot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in those times, looking back, I can remember that we went to a school where uh, it was run by the Jesuit priests. Those men are a little bit old when they're ordained. They must be around 35. By the time they get out teaching, they're closer to 40, 50. They were the old school. And uh, periodically, I suppose once a year, the ladies in the WCTU would come and they would give an illustration, you know, and a lecture about the horrible effects of alcohol. I remember some of the older men standing in the back of the hall, you know, and winking once in a while to each other. They didn't seem to accept all that the WCTU was offering. But that was the educational program at that time. In uh, college, I had a little job in the newspaper writing uh, articles for the sporting page. And uh, you got paid so much a column, and there was a small school, and you had to use a powerful imagination to get anything to put in the paper. But we'd get an occasional assignment, like to cover the yacht races, the ski shoots, tennis tournaments, prize fight once in a while, baseball games. And uh, quite often these entailed a banquet. And uh, I can remember being at those banquets, and I wasn't exactly a kid anymore up in college, and uh, they always had a good uh, table. And they also had some very good drinks. At that time, I can remember distinctly of shoving my glass of champagne to the man next to me when he emptied his and taking his empty glass and putting it before mine. He was a hotel owner. And I got along famously that night by that exchange. Oh, there's lots of times later in life when I regretted that generosity. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that there was no compulsion at that time. A few of the uh, more sophisticated lads, they uh, would go into the Kaiserhof, you know, and get a few beers. And, but there wasn't too much drinking. It was before that era of prohibition. I went into seminary about the time the country went dry. And for six long years in professional studies there, and you studied, there wasn't much temptation, even during vacation. And I think the main reason was that we realized that all you'd have to do would be manifest some indications of inebriety and uh, you would be uh, out. You can be quite sure that the ecclesiastical authorities, 
if they suspected that someone of their students was going to become alcoholic, they would recommend that he'd become a good barber, lawyer, salesman, but they'd make mighty sure that he wouldn't become a priest. And you know, even today, they don't know just exactly what to look for. Not so long ago, I was on the plane with a priest who was in charge of a seminary, and we got talking, and he asked me that question, what indications, what symptoms should we look for? I couldn't tell him too much. Oh, they say we're emotionally immature, but who is it? A non-alcoholic shows many signs of emotional immaturity, just as the alcoholic does. Well, for the first five years I was ordained, there was no great difficulty. Young, strong, full of zeal, if you will. And uh, we had a peculiar rule in that parish that uh, you could not visit the homes just for social visits unless one of the boys in that home uh, had become a priest. It just so happened that there were nine from that parish who were priests. I'll not mention their names, but I'll say this, they were almost as Irish as the names I met of the individuals coming in here tonight. <laughs> and there may be some German in here, and there may be some Italian, but I didn't meet it. <laughs> By Mackinoyal always no two Irishmen they say, but if they lack both O and Mac, no Irishmen are they. So I gather this is pretty much of an Irish group. However, that has nothing to do with uh, what I'm trying to say here, is uh, all these good Irish mothers, their sons, of course, were ordained and stationed in other cities. In this glorious era prohibition, they could make some pretty good homemade wine. And they had some home brew that had passed inspection. And you hear a lot of derogatory remarks about some of the stuff that we drank during Prohibition, but you know, some of that corn that those old German farmers made in that era was pretty smooth. <laughs> and it wasn't very expensive. And besides that, uh, there was a, one bootlegger in the parish. He's long since gone to his reward. And his name was Tim Murphy. Now, Tim uh, would not speak to one of us on the street because he didn't want us to lose our reputation. But all you had to do was to call up Tim and he'd put some bonded stuff on the front seat of the car, which would be in the garage. And Tim never committed the sacrilege of charging the priest. All these factors combined, and the first thing you know, I started uh, these accidents, which uh, you have a hard time explaining. I remember asking the janitor one day if he'd wash my car before anyone uh, else noticed it. And he did, but he came back. His name was Mike Count. He said, what I don't understand, Father, he says, is, you say you uh, slipped off the road, but he says it was the left-hand side of the car that was all mutt. Why wasn't it the right-hand side? Well, you do cross that center line, you know, under certain conditions. There were other accidents. Pretty soon the roof fell in, and there became a succession of hospitals. Why the hospital? Well, we were mentioning tonight over at the clinic, 
In those days, back in the late 20s, they didn't have all these rest homes. And uh, they had one or the other rather expensive sanitarium where the wealthy men went to get boiled out. It was then, as you recall, seven or eight years before anyone heard of AA, before it had been born. So the most convenient place to park a priest was in a hospital. They could put you in there, take out the telephone, put a no visitor sign on your door, and the little sister in charge of the floor, she'd say, cough when those nurses are in here now, so they'll think you got something wrong with you. <laughs> and your average stay in the hospital, at least mine was, was not five days. It was five weeks, and believe it or not, I've served five months in those hospitals. They didn't have the hospitalization in those days, and uh, your people only went to the hospital if they were going to have an operation or something seriously wrong with them. Not like today when they go in to get a little rest, you know. So there was room in the hospitals. And of course, uh, the sisters didn't send the bishop any bill either. They wouldn't have done him much good as they had, I don't think. So that, that was a very convenient place to park a priest who was having trouble. And that's where I spent my hours of confinement, in the hospitals. Oh, I know what the inside of the jail looks like, too. There was a, one or the other time when the officers who, for my own safety, uh, escorted me, uh, not home, but to their headquarters, these officers didn't happen to be the typical Irish cops. <laughs> It was just a mistake. <laughs> they didn't keep me very long, and they didn't uh, make any display of going before the judge in the morning. Sometime before daylight, one of them took me home, took me to a hotel or someplace. But I knew what the inside of those places looked like. Well, about that time, the powers that be got this tired of trying to uh, run my life. I was making a mess of it. They were making a mess of it. They didn't know what to do. When we say that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable, it wasn't hard for me to realize that because I knew that I couldn't manage it. And I knew that some pretty smart men in much higher positions than I were, they couldn't manage it either. So it wasn't too hard for me to admit that that my life was unmanageable. Well, that was long before I was ready to make such an admission. I might have known it, but I surely didn't accept it. And I didn't admit it. They began to get tired of this performance, so I got <clears throat> a letter one day. This was, I can't <clears throat> bore you with all the details. Time will not permit. But I had started, I think, in Ohio, two or three hospitals, and then uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and then Denver, and St. Louis. That was the first go-round, you might say. It was after being in St. Louis from Labor Day until Christmas, and uh, getting along very well, and uh, then decided to celebrate Christmas, that the roof fell in, and I got a letter in the Latin tongue, 
The sum and substance of it was, to put it in the language of baseball, well, now you're not a bad guy, but we don't want you playing on the team anymore. We don't want you to wear the uniform. We don't even want you to sell peanuts around the park. We prefer you get out of town and stay there. So I was headed out of town from St. Louis. I landed in Washington. And in Washington, I was just according to the, I guess the one sentence that I remembered best, that I was to rehabilitate myself. That was a, quite a word for me at that time. So uh, through a little political machination, I became the client of a senator. Be awful careful, I mentioned his name one time, and somebody like this gentleman took a tape recording of it, and it, the record got down below the Mason-Dixon line, and I got a flare back on it. Well, let's just say then to avoid that happening again, this senator was from one of the southern states. It also happened at the time that he was a, one of the big shots in the Ku Klux Klan. It didn't matter to him when he was asked by some one of his friends to find me a Catholic priest a job. He did. In fact, he had to find me two or three while I was in Washington because the first one didn't last too long. On the first one, I was a social worker. I have to be awful careful not to pay my respects to the social workers because uh, even then I had a sort of an antipathy towards them. Because you know they were always trying to find a reason why you drank. I think some of our psychologists and psychiatrists are still looking for that reason. And to me, and you can take it or leave it, I'm not asking you to accept my opinion. To me, there's only one reason why anybody drinks, and that's because he likes what it does to it. You don't have to like the taste, and God knows you're not running away from anything. You drank just as much at the football game as you would uh, at the time when you were homesick. But anyway, uh, first the social worker, and then the clerk with the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, and then uh, finally with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And I knew just about as much about any of that work as a dog does about Sunday. End. 20 years in school with theology and philosophy and sacred scripture and history and Latin and Greek and mathematics didn't exactly qualify me to hold down any of those jobs. But that's where I was rehabilitating myself. And after four years of that, an old uncle in New York called me up on the phone and he says, how are you getting along? And I said, well, let's not kid ourselves. And he says, no use, I know about you, I found out. He said, come and see me. And I went to see him and he took me to see a friend of his, a friend who owed him a favor. And that friend turned out to be Mary Hague of Jersey City. You know, the mayor, way back in those days, and that was 1937, he'd never heard of AA. In fact, uh, I had never heard of it, and it was very little known about it at that time. But the mayor never had a drink in his life. He never smoked. 
He could swear like nobody's business, and the paper said he stole a million or two, but he didn't indulge in those things. <laughs> the mayor says, you come and stay with me. And I thought right away that he was going to put me up in one of his fancy golf clubs or one of his nice summer homes or something like that. I stayed with him. It was in a two-by-four cell in the psychosis ward of Jersey City Medical Center with big iron bars in the window. And uh, for clothes, they gave you a hospital gown, you know, and those little things with ties in the back. You wouldn't feel safe in an in bed, let alone parade around the court. <laughs> and there I stayed from uh, decoration date of the 4th of July. And the mayor would come in. And he'd say, how are you getting along? You don't have to answer. I can read a chart. The mayor had no uh, doubts about his ability in any regard. But after a couple questions like that, he'd start to pound the table and he'd say, and he could swear, as I told you, by this and that and the other person too, he'd say, you've got to get it through your head once and for all. You can't take any liquor. You can't take any dago red. You can't take any beer. You understand that? I'd say, yes, sir. They say you don't. <laughs> he'd turn on his heel and he'd walk out. That went on for both three or four visits at weekly intervals. He'd send a psychiatrist in, a big shot, who was testifying in the different murder cases in New York, and the psychiatrist would beguile me with tales of those murders, and I'd say, what are you going to do for me, doctor? And he'd say, nothing. There isn't anything I can do for you. Now, let me seem drastic to you, but that was the treatment. Not so far back, 37 isn't so far back. <coughs> I had run into a doctor in St. Louis, which uh, I like to recall. Just before Christmas, just before I went on, he said, well, you'll be going home now, won't you? And I said, yes. And he says, uh, are you going to drink? No, no. And he said, I wish that were true, Father. But he says, I'm not arguing with you. He says, I want to ask you, did you have any younger brothers and sisters? And I said, yes. Do you remember when your mother taught him to walk? And I said, yes. Do you remember how she'd take the little fellow and stand him up next to the couch and step back a couple steps and say, come on, and hold out her hand? I said, yes. Do you remember how he'd take a step or two and then go crashing down? Yes. And he'd cry. She'd pick him up, soothe him till he forgot it and tried the same process over. And I said, yeah, I couldn't remember that. He says, that's you, Father. The baby learns to walk, and you can learn to walk if you stick to it. With that, he went out. You know, years later, even after I was in an A and had difficulty, when I was of a mind to think that this program might work for Tom, Dick, and Harry, but it wouldn't work for me, I recall the words of that doctor. You know, when I was a young priest, first five or six years, I could give quite a sermon on despair. And looking back, I just wonder what I said. Because up to that time, I didn't have any idea what they meant by that word despair. I mention this for one reason. There may be someone here, or you may know someone, who can get into that frame of mind when he thinks this program will work for others, but there's something about me that it won't work for me. Look out.
When you get into that frame of mind, then is the time, if you can't snap out of it, when you should welcome the gentleman with the white coats and the neck. That's the time when they should put you away. And they did just that for me. And then do you realize just exactly what society thinks of Then your feet are really cut out from under you. And then uh, you begin to feel a resentment that God knows whether you'll ever get over it or not. Maybe if you live long enough and you can say to yourself, well, for the wrong those persons did who committed me or caused this, I will accept their punishment for my misdeeds. Maybe you'll get over it. Maybe you won't. I don't guarantee. We say, uh, blithely, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves would restore us to sanity. Well, that's our second step. Brother, when they question your sanity, that's when you begin to get your back up, you know. And yet, when you look back at some of the things you've done, at least I can look back, why in the world would anybody in a house where there was at least a half a dozen beds, a beautiful house, when you were the only one in the house, when you came into that house when the rest of them happened to be at early mass, why in the world, instead of going to your own room and going to your own bed or taking one of the other beds, would you want to crawl up on top of an upright can to go to sleep? Please turn cassette over at this time. To go to sleep. <laughs> I might tell you that the mayor's admonition to me didn't conclude with just saying, get it out of your head, you can take a drink. He used to pick up my prayer book, something like this, the one the priest always carries with him. And he'd say, you get it out of your head that you can take a drink and you stick to your prayers. And then asterisk, question mark, and so forth to indicate how he could swear, this thing will work. Now you boil down an egg. Get it out of your head that you can take a drink and stick to your prayers. NAA will work. It does work. It's bound to work. The only trouble is we can get that out of our head that we can take a drink. And tomorrow, and next week, and next month, it can come sneaking back into our head. I honestly believe that the mind can do some flip-flops, you know. You know how it is when you're tuning in the television. Sometimes it keeps running a mile a minute. The mind does about the same thing. We have certain controls in the television. We have those controls too in AA if we use them. After the mayor told me that, I stuck to my prayers, and I remembered what he said, and for five years, I didn't have any difficulty. That only brought me up to about 42, 43. 
I still hadn't heard anything of AA. There wasn't too much of it around in those days. After five years, it only took a matter of a couple months to get back into harness. They're not going to let any priest go by the wayside and not make use of him, not after it costs so much to educate him, and that does cost a lot. They put me back to work, not right in my home ballywick. They're not that broad-minded, let's face it. <laughs> They're not going to take that much chance, but in a neighboring state. And after five years, uh, I was going on a cruise. I'd been on that cruise the year before, about a week cruise up through the islands there, up through Mackinac. I'd stuck to Coca-Cola the preceding year and gotten along fine and enjoyed a nice cruise. This year I took a couple things and stuck them in my grip. Now, I didn't ask anyone about that. I didn't say to one of my friends, do you think now that I'm all right so it'll be safe to take a drink again? You know, I didn't ask anybody. I couldn't think of anybody who would agree with me. So I put Mr. Hagen Hagen in the grip, and that turned out to be an awful rough voyage. All right, back where I started. A few years later, oh, that was another long session in the hospital. Didn't happen just then, no. A few weeks later, a few months later, maybe it was a year later, I don't know, I was back in the hospital again. And that time was a long siege. But I really think, and this, uh, you can take it or leave it, it's strictly a private opinion, I think that the mayor really knocked out of me the conceit that I could take a drink. I can't remember ever taking a drink after that that I didn't feel awful guilty. He surely spoiled it for me, just like AA will spoil it for you if you stick around. Whatever happened after that was in the nature of sneaking a drink, you might say. And every time I ever tried to sneak a drink, it was just exactly like lighting a match to a firecracker. Sometimes that fuse would burn that day, sometimes two days, sometimes a week, and I've gone as high as a month and two months, but eventually that blows up and I'm back in the hospital. And to me, that's the way it happens to most alcoholics. Sure, you can get along maybe for a day or two drinking, maybe a week. But if you're alcoholic and you light that fuse to that firecracker, make up your mind you'll end up in pajamas or in jail or maybe the cemetery or the asylum. And I think that's the difference between us and the non-alcoholic. The non-alcoholic, he can pinch that fuse out whenever he wants. He may decide not to pinch it out some night and have a rip-roaring party. The next day he doesn't, uh, the fuse is out. Not with us. The next day there's that old compulsion to keep on, keep on, keep going. As I told you, I got athlete's foot. Have you ever had that uh, very bothersome thing? You know how it is. Can't wait to get home to get your shoes off. Sometimes take them off right in the car. Why? Because there's an unholy itch there. Did you ever go into a hospital and see a beautiful young girl lying in the bed there with her hands tied to the sides of the bed? And you say to the sister, what do you got that little girl tied up for? And the sister will say, is she a pretty girl? Father, very pretty. Well, you ask me why we had our hands tied up? Because if we release her hands, you know, she'll scratch her face and disfigure her beauty. 
Oh, she's old enough to know better than to do that. She's pretty near 20 years old, yes. She says she knows better, but she says, if you had that same unholy itch as she has, you'd scratch your face too. Now I'm saying is that because when you are an alcoholic and you take a drink, you acquire that urge. You acquire that drive. And there's very little little stop you. The only safe thing is not to light the fuse to it, not to take the first drink. Well, I could make it a little more graphic. I used to have a beautiful Irish setter dog, Dick. And he was uh, the most gentle, the most beautiful thing I've ever loved, I guess. And Dick could mind me to a T. Except once in a while we'd be out playing or going for a walk. The little female and he did go by and Dick was gone. <laughs> I could beat him, choke him or anything else. He paid no attention to me. <laughs> it's been a long time since then, but it illustrates just as well as anything I can tell you that unholy urge that you get if you're alcoholic and you try to do it. We don't have to drink. And because we don't have to drink, we're in AA. And because we don't want to have to drink, we stick around AA. And I like AA. I'm not proud of the, any of the things that I've done. There was nothing very clever about it. I just made a nuisance of myself. And if you're not sure what the word nuisance means, look when you go past the alley the next time and you'll see how they ordinarily use that word. Now, in AA, we've acquired a few things. Sobriety. That implies a lot. You know, uh, tonight I asked the back, I was going to say to Ohio, which you're in Ohio, it's this back across the state. You know, a few years back, They'd never let me start out. A perfect stranger would have uh, collared me before I started out. And if I didn't start out, the state police would have collared me. There's no worry like that tonight. Look at the difference. Before, the wife couldn't trust you to go to the grocery store. Now, she not only trusts you, but is glad when you go. <laughs> now you can babysit. Now you can walk your daughter down the aisle for one of those beautiful church weddings. You know the most glorious love story I ever witnessed. I didn't read it, I saw it. They're both gone to their eternal rest, Duffy and his wife. They come to the parting of the ways. Because the priest and the lawyer and the doctor and everyone else told Mrs. Duffy, you've got to get rid of the so-and-so. You just can't live with him any longer. And so to get some dope on Duffy, she put a private detective on his trail, and the detective came back after two days, and he says, I won't take your money, that man. He says he hasn't got women on his mind at all. He says, why, the other night we were in a bar, and the most gorgeous creature, a blonde, he just sat right beside him and tried to get him to buy her a drink, and he wouldn't even look at it. Duffy himself would leave that bar and walk over to the Overland plant and to lead her through the ice and the snow just to walk home with Mrs. Duffy. They didn't have any car. They'd come to the parting of the ways and they took the streetcar downtown to Toledo and held hands on the way down and both of them cried. 
And the referee for the probate judge said, you ever hear of AA? Duffy hadn't. So he called in one of the court workers and they explained. And Duffy embraced AA and he never had another drink. And it was he I was thinking of, walked down the aisle of beautiful St. Agnes Church with this lovely little bride on his arm, and I was standing on the altar next to the priest who was to marry him, their old pastor. And the old pastor said under his breath to me, he says, look who's coming down the aisle. He says, you know, if this wedding had taken place a couple years ago, it would have taken a half a dozen relatives to keep Duffy away from the church. <laughs> Those are things we achieve in AA that you can't put a price on. We don't guarantee to get wealthy. I never do. Dang. Wealthier in AA than I had before. I never had anything before. Let's face it, we're not going to set the world on fire. One of the mistaken notions, I think, in AA is that we're supermen, you know. More efficient, more expert, and so on and so forth. Oh, we like to hear that, but let's not take it too seriously. Because, you know, when you go bowling, you've got to be a little bit careful. If you've got an average of 150, don't bet the guy with 160 average that you can beat him at a quarter a game. I think the old law of averages catches up with us. You know, we've got something in AA which you might call sanctity. Now, I'm not giving a sermon for where I'd be next door. And it's getting late. Sanctity means holiness. Holiness means a good state of affairs. You don't find that word in the 12 steps or the 12 traditions or in the four absolutes. To be holy means to be good. And to be good means in the sense that this is a good watch because it keeps good time. And I keep a good fountain pen because it'll write. And I want a good car so I can get over the ground. I want to go to a good doctor. I wouldn't want to go to a doctor who would say, come in and meet me, I'm the biggest quack on the street. I wouldn't want to go to a lawyer and say, well, I'll try, but you know, I'm just a shyster. In fact, I never met any tradesman or professional man who would come out and admit that he didn't know his profession. Now, we want to be good at something. It doesn't matter whether I can dance or whether I can sing or whether I can do something else. But as far as AA goes, it does matter a whole lot. I've got to be good at that. And I don't mean talking. I don't mean putting on a front. I mean I've got to be honest with myself. And that's what we mean by sanctity. We've got that in AA. We've got the mean. And you get right down to it. Just the fact that we're here. Didn't the Lord say we're two or three are gathered together? There I am in the midst of them. And when you come right down to it, if you didn't say any morning prayer, or didn't think you got all before, at least you said a couple prayers at the start of the meeting, and we'll say the Lord's Prayer when we get through. And if you didn't take any inventory up to this time today, uh, at least you can't help but comparing a few of your experiences with whatever I might have to offer. We got a lot in the program, and we had that sign Somewhere around here, I'm sure, by the grace of God. What is grace? It's the help we get from Almighty God. It's like your credit at the bank. You paid your bills, and uh, because you paid your bills, the banker's willing to lend you a little money. We get that credit by going to our meetings, by trying to help the other guy when we can. 
And I think there's an awful lot of sociability in AA, too. I don't mean the white tie and tails kind, or even the tuxedo and formal. Uh, we have an occasional dance or a picnic. But the real sociability in my book is that that takes place over a cup of coffee, usually in the kitchen, you know. Or when you meet a guy on the street and you talk over some things that are bothering you or maybe bothering him. It's a little AA meeting. And there again, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, as far as serenity, I don't claim to have too much of that. I'm not too concerned because I can't ride around on cloud nine. And this may be dangerous for me to say, and you can delete it, but I don't go along entirely with the good Bishop Sheehan and his pal Peel, I can think of his first name, or even Dale Carnegie. Peace of soul and peace of mind and all this business as well, but, uh, you know, day in and day out you do bump your toe against the rock and you do have troubles. The church still prays at the end of the Mass in this veil of tears. There's no use feeling too sorry for yourself because no matter how bad you're feeling now, you can't hang on to it. It's gonna, you're going to feel better later on. Remember when you were a kid and you got mad at your mother and you were never going to speak to her again? Ten minutes later, you forgot all about it. The same things happen to us. We get in a vile mood. Maybe it comes from the weather. Maybe it comes from because somebody took the wind out of our sails. No matter what it is, that'll pass. We do have a certain sense of serenity. And uh, by the same token, we can be of some service to it. Each one has to figure that out for himself. Some people have good luck with their 12 steps, 12 step work. Others get drunk if they go out and try to help somebody. Let's face it. But there's always places like your clinic over here to visit. There's always some guy who hasn't had too much luck with the program that you can kind of resurrect again, you know, and get going with him again. There's always the hospitals, there's always the jails. I have a little special project, I have retreats, which I gather as many as will come together and we spend a weekend in discussing AA and trying to improve ourselves spiritually. We have one of those. This isn't exactly an ad, it's just a statement. Two weeks from the night, October the 4th, 5th, and 6th, over at Cary, that's for the women. We have one for the men in April. Several of the men here have been to these retreats, which I have assisted and conducted. You know, I like to think of what that judge said in Chicago. I don't have a copy of it with me, and it takes too long to read, but it goes something like this. To you, and he's addressing me, God has given a gift which he has denied to his ministers, to his doctors, to his learned men. It is a gift of making yourself understood and understanding the problem of the man you're talking to. There is a common bond there. If God wanted intellectual men, 
he could have called upon his professors. If he wanted eloquent men, he could have called upon his stage uh, actors. If he wanted scientists, he could have gone to his colleagues. If he wanted medical men, he would have given his gift to the physician. He didn't. He gave it to you. Alcoholics. Other societies gauge their wealth by their success, by their assets, by the number of influential men who belong to them. Your success is based on your faith. It's because of your failures in life that you are banded together. It's because of your failures that you are able to talk the language to someone else. Because of what has happened to you, you can lead out, hold out hope to a fellow sufferer. I think we really, all of us, can be of service. And I wish to thank you for listening. <clears throat>